right, you can put your hymnals away and I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Sends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Lord, you have said in your word that your sheep listen to your voice. And we ask now that you would bless the preaching and proclamation of your word. And we pray, Lord, that your sheep would listen to your voice. May we receive this as the word of God and not the word of man. Lord, may it be only your truth that is spoken here. And we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word unto the conversion of sinners and the edification of your people. May you be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up again this morning in John's Gospel. And we now come to the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry. Now to recap, to this point, we've been introduced to Jesus as not merely being a man, but as the word of God made flesh. John's prologue revealed that God the Son, the word, the eternal Logos, was with God and he was God. We saw in verse 3 that through him all things were made. And we saw in verse 14 that God, the eternal word, God the Son, became flesh and tabernacled among us. That is, he became a man. He entered into his own creation. We've then seen that John the Baptist, not the author of this gospel, 
Uh, but John the Baptist was sent as the forerunner for Christ. And he gave his testimony that Jesus was the one he was sent to proclaim. John's ministry, as we saw, was to point to Jesus Christ. As he answered when he was asked, he said, I am just a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John had proclaimed that the one who came after him ranked before him because he was before him. The man who came after him was a man whose sandals John was not worthy to untie. And we saw last week, John identified Jesus is this man. For God had arranged a sign with John that the man on whom the Spirit would descend and remain, this would be he who would baptize with the Spirit. He is the Son of God. And our passage this morning continues to expand on who Jesus is and what he came to do. He is introduced to several of the men who would later become his disciples. And in the process, we learn more about the person of Jesus Christ as they uh, ascribe various names and titles to him. So let us read together from verse 35. The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So we, we, say, we begin with the next day. So this is likely the day after John had publicly identified Jesus as the man he was sent to proclaim. Uh, he sees Jesus again, and he proclaimed, Behold, the Lamb of God. And as we saw last week, this phrase, the Lamb of God, is loaded with meaning. The twice daily sacrifice of a lamb as an offering to God the unblemished Passover lamb whose blood spared the people from death, the lamb that God provided to Abraham to sacrifice in place of Isaac. These and many more all provide rich background for the phrase, the lamb of God. Now, whatever they may have understood from this phrase, the two disciples of John do seem to have understood John's core message. And that is, this is the man. Of whom I spoke. Remember, John was simply a forerunner, and so it would be natural that when the coming one had been identified, that some of his followers would leave him to follow Jesus. And that's what we see happening here. They begin following after Jesus, and Jesus turned and saw him, saw them following, and said to them, "What are you seeking?" And they said to him, "Rabbi," which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So we see Andrew here is named, but the other disciple of John the Baptist is not identified. Uh, commentators and scholars have suggested that this other unnamed disciple was very likely John, uh, the beloved disciple, uh, the author of this account. He, he doesn't ever reference uh, John by name in this whole gospel. He refers to himself as the beloved disciple. And so this uh, lack of naming the other disciple would, would fit with how John uh, approaches himself in his narrative. Some also suggest that this explains why a detail like the hour of the day would have been recorded. For this event of meeting Jesus for the first time, 
uh, marked a pivotal point in John's life. You can think meeting Jesus changed John's life forever. He encountered the word made flesh and his life was altered. And so given the significance of this event for John, we can understand how something like this would very well etch certain details into his memory. Now, in any case, Andrew and this other disciple, who's quite possibly John, start following Jesus. And then Jesus turns around and asks them, what are you seeking? Now, rather than simply jump into all of their theological questions, they instead ask, Rabbi, where are you staying? Perhaps hoping that they can come with him and find greater time and opportunity to ask what they really wanted to know in either a more comfortable or more appropriate setting. Jesus responds simply, come and you will see. So Jesus invites them to come along with him and they spend the rest of the day undoubtedly asking questions and learning from this great rabbi, this great teacher. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So although Andrew is introduced first in this narrative, he is introduced here as being Simon Peter's brother. This is likely because Peter was a far more prominent figure in the early church whose name would have been well known at the time that John got around to writing his gospel. Andrew's name, less so. So by saying that Andrew first found his own brother, this could suggest that the other disciple went and did the same. And this would strengthen the theory that John is the other disciple. So Andrew first went to find his own brother, Simon, and John went to find his own brother, James. And we know Peter, Andrew, James, and John were among the very first of the disciples to follow Jesus. But this all raises an interesting question, uh, and that is, doesn't this account contradict the other Gospels? Right? Here we have Andrew and possibly John going to find Peter and James and then telling them about Jesus. Uh, and after Andrew and John had learned about Jesus from John the Baptist. But in the other Gospels, Jesus comes to Peter and Andrew and then to James and John who are fishing with their father. And Jesus then calls them to follow him saying, I will make them make you fishers of men. So how, how do we explain this? Uh, does the Bible contradict itself? Well, no. Uh, there is nothing in these two accounts that actually contradict one another. In fact, if anything, John's account helps to explain that of the other Gospels. Mark 1, 16 to 20, uh, Jesus, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, says he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and he left their father Zebedee. They left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And so D.A. Carson writes, the promptness with which the disciples, according to the synoptic tradition, abandoned their livelihood 
in response to Jesus' explicit call is psychologically and historically more plausible if that was not their first exposure to him or their first demonstration of fealty toward him. To put that simply, uh, Carson argues that Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts make more sense if the story that John told happened first. Right? So these are not contradictory, but he, he suggests here that what John tells, that happened before the story of Jesus calling them while they're fishing. Right? Jesus comes and calls these fishermen, follow me. Now, if they had never seen him or even heard of him before, what would you naturally expect to be their response? Something more like, I'm sorry, who are you? If, however, they've heard the testimony of John the Baptist and have already spent some time with Jesus and have become convinced that he is the Messiah, their response becomes a lot easier to understand. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Now, there are quite a number of these alleged contradictions between the different gospel accounts, and we won't take the time to address all of them as we work through John. But you can take this story as a good example. Uh, Give God's word the benefit of the doubt. Many of these alleged contradictions have very simple explanations that allow us to harmonize the gospel accounts. And so always remember that the fact that you don't have an answer, that you don't know of an answer, doesn't mean that there isn't one. Give scripture the benefit of the doubt. Now back to John. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So he says, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. Kids, did you know that Christ is not Jesus's last name? Right? When we refer to him as Jesus Christ, we are declaring that he is the Messiah. This is a title. Uh, He is the Messiah. Christos, Christ, is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, or Messiah, which means anointed one. Now that is another term which is rich in Old Testament significance. We see this term used to refer to the king of Israel, as the king is frequently referred to as the Lord's anointed. Think especially of uh, David And King Saul, as David would refuse to lay his hand on the Lord's anointed. We see the priests as well. They were all anointed with the holy anointing oil, um, setting them apart for service. And we also see prophets uh, being anointed. Uh, Psalm 105 verse 15 refers to the patriarchs as anointed ones, likely in connection to their role as prophets. And then Elisha, the prophetic successor to Elijah, was anointed for the office of prophet in 1 Kings 9.16. And so Jesus, as the Messiah, is presented in the New Testament as fulfilling all of these roles. He is prophet, priest, and king. The anointed one par excellence. In the Old Testament, these are all anointed roles. Whereas in the Old Testament, they were generally held by different persons uh, with some occasional overlap. Jesus unites them 
and fulfills all of these roles preeminently. Tom Nettles writes, As the mediator between God and his people, Jesus Christ fulfills and unifies three offices that are present yet distinct in the Old Testament. Those who hold the office of prophet are those by whom God's people are given necessary knowledge about God. Jesus Christ came as the perfect prophet because he is the very word of God himself. Priests are those by whom God's people are forgiven, justified, and reconciled to God. And Jesus came as the perfect priest because it is by his sacrificial death and ongoing life that we are reconciled to God. The kings of Israel were charged with carrying out God's rule on earth. Now Jesus reigns as king over all creation and exercises God's reign perfectly as God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism addresses each of these offices, and these would be great uh, study uh, for for, for further study and meditation. How doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer. Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Thirdly, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Answer, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, our passage this morning reveals more of who Christ is, specifically through these titles uh, that are ascribed to him by the disciples. And we actually see all three of these offices represented through the discussions and confessions made by the disciples. And we'll go back and unpack these all at the end. Uh, For now, let's go back to our text. So Andrew, pardon me, Andrew brought his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now Cephas means Peter, and Peter means rock or stone. A name representing firmness or constancy. Now what's interesting though, is that it's not really until after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit that Peter began to live up to this name. Right throughout the Gospels, we see him acting quite rashly. Uh, He is bold, but he can also be fickle at times. He stepped out onto the waves, but took his eyes off of Christ and began to sink. He was bold in boasting about his commitment to follow Christ unto death but he denied that he even knew him when the time came. 
And yet we see that after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, uh, with some growth still to come, Peter eventually did become rock solid. He was a bold and faithful apostle. A tradition holds that he eventually did even go to his death as a martyr for Christ. But what's so interesting is that Christ gave him this name at their first meeting. The Carson writes that Christ not only sees into people's hearts, but he calls people in such a way that he makes them what he calls them to be. Now, the Christian life is very much in this. Become who you are in Christ. Remember that through Christ, God declares us to be righteous. We are positionally righteous in his sight. And so the calling on the Christian life is become what you are. Become righteous as you are righteous. Become holy as you are holy. We have died to sin. We were buried with Christ through baptism into death. So let us live alive to God in Christ and dead to sin. Become who you are. And recognize that this is the work of Christ in you. Christ makes us what he calls us to be. Let's continue on. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip is now called to follow Christ and he responds positively to the call. He was evidently brought up to speed very quickly because the next thing we have is Philip going and telling Nathanael, uh, which is likely another name for Bartholomew. Uh, he, he goes and finds Nathanael and declares to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now we're not told exactly which passages Philip had in mind from the law and the prophets, uh, but there are very, very many <laughs> that he could have been referencing. Uh, one that was actually alluded to earlier in this chapter was Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. If you remember back to the messengers that came to John the Baptist, uh, the messengers from the Pharisees, one of the questions they asked him back in verse 21 was, are you the prophet? And we linked that back to where Moses had prophesied that God would raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. And it is to him that you will listen. The prophecy was that God would raise up another prophet like Moses. Now, what is it that set Moses apart from the other prophets? Well, God says in Numbers chapter 12 that it is in the fact that God speaks to Moses directly. Numbers chapter 12, you may remember Aaron and Miriam had been grumbling against Moses. And so God answered back to them and said, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful 
in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. So notice Moses is unique among the prophets, for God says that he speaks to Moses face to face, here mouth to mouth, clearly, directly, not in riddles, but rather as a man speaks to a friend. And so we see Jesus himself declare, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Remember what was prophesied about the servant, about the prophet like Moses. I will put my words into his mouth and he shall speak all that I command him. And Jesus says, God has, the Father has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus says, the Father gave it himself. Here we have the prophet like Moses, set apart from the other prophets in that God speaks to him directly. If God speaking to Moses directly and face to face is what set Moses apart as a unique prophet, then how much greater ought we to regard Jesus, the very Son of God, the one who has eternally been at the Father's side? Christ is our great prophet. As Andrew and John called him, Christ is our great rabbi, our teacher. And he is a perfect teacher. Now, just to get very practical for us here, if we too are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, how can we be taught by him? Well, as we referenced earlier, the catechism gives a great answer. How does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executes the office of a prophet by revealing to us by his word and spirit, the will of God for our salvation. If you are to be a follower of Christ, if you would have him as a teacher, as rabbi, as your great prophet, if you would be taught by Christ, then go to his word. And that does not just mean the red letters, some Bibles have uh, red letters for the words that Jesus himself spoke. And I don't have a problem with those Bibles, but there is a possible danger with them. They can give us the false impression that the rest of the Bible is somehow less Christ's word than the red letters. As if the words that Jesus spoke on earth are somehow more authoritative than the rest of the Bible. But what does scripture say? All scripture is theonistos, breathed out by God. And it is therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So notice, all scripture is breathed out by God. The Holy Spirit, who is God, one God together with the Father and the Son, is the one who has inspired the scriptures. And so we must never pit Jesus against the rest of Scripture 
as if he would disagree. God the Son will never oppose God the Holy Spirit. There is no disunity in the Godhead. Scripture is the word of God. Scripture is the word of Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So brothers and sisters, come to the Scriptures to be taught by Christ, your rabbi, your teacher, your great prophet. Make it a daily priority to be spending time in his word so that you could be taught his will for your life. Make the Lord's Day an immovable priority in your life as well so that you and your family can receive the word of Christ as it is proclaimed, explained, and applied by uh, under-shepherds of the Good Shepherd. Come to the scriptures to be taught by your prophet. Let's continue on. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now the town of Nazareth evidently had a bad reputation in the surrounding area. Uh, Albert Barnes writes that the character of Nazareth was proverbially bad. To be a Galilean or a Nazarene was an expression of decided contempt, close quote. It's also been suggested uh, that the hatred of Nazareth may have been because Nazareth was the location of a Roman garrison, uh, a base from which the occupying Roman soldiers would have operated. Another possible reason for Nathaniel's skepticism is the fact that the Old Testament had not prophesied the birth of the Messiah in Nazareth. But what Nathaniel didn't know at this point is that although Jesus was raised in Nazareth, he was not born in Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, the city prophesied to be the birthplace of one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days, Micah 5.2. Now, whatever his reasons, Nathaniel was skeptical about anyone from Nazareth. Rather than argue with him, Philip simply says, come and see. Now, it's interesting that Nathaniel here, due to his prejudice against Nazareth, was in danger of missing the Messiah. The negative associations that he unfairly had attached to Jesus could have prevented him from meeting the Savior, from encountering the Word made flesh. And this kind of thing continues to be a danger today. If you don't yet know Christ, please do not let your preconceived notions prevent you from coming to see for yourself. You know, whatever it is, if it's your perception of church or of church people, perhaps a bad experience you've had with someone who once claimed to be a Christian, 
Or maybe you have a wrong idea of what being a follower of Christ is, is really all about. Whatever it may be for you, please do not let these prejudices prevent you from meeting the Savior. But rather, we implore you, as Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. Come to Jesus. Come to the Savior. He is, in fact, the one of whom Moses and the prophets spoke. He is the Messiah. There is life in him. Come to Christ and see for yourself. Now, for those of us who do know Christ, this ought to be our call to all who do not know him. Come and see. Notice in this passage that everyone, with the exception of Philip, everyone else is first introduced by, uh, to Christ by a friend or family member. We saw John the Baptist testifying to Andrew and John. Andrew and John, who then went to go tell their brothers. John telling James, Andrew telling Peter. And once Philip had been called, he immediately went to tell Nathaniel. And this has been historically one of, but not the only, but one of the important ways that the kingdom of God has grown and expanded. And that is through earnest followers of Christ, telling their loved ones, their friends, their neighbors, their coworkers and families about the good news that has transformed their lives. And truly, Love for neighbor requires us to proclaim this good news to the lost. We have found the Messiah. He is the one that the prophets had predicted. He is the Lamb of God. He has died for sinners like us. He has risen from the dead and promises forgiveness to all who will turn to him in repentance and faith. The promise is made that those who receive him, who believe in his name, will be granted the right to become children of God. Let us proclaim this good news to all. Come and see. Brothers and sisters, think of those in your life who do not know Christ. Will you love them enough to risk the possibility of an awkward conversation. The fact is, you may be the only mature believer in that person's life. You might be the only believer in that person's life. And so if you won't bring them the gospel, who will? Take courage, pray to the Lord for their souls, Pray that God would grant you the words and then follow the example of the disciples. Point your loved ones to Christ. Have a conversation, explain and proclaim the gospel or invite them to church. You know, the worship of the church is not primarily about evangelism, but it is true that in churches where the gospel is proclaimed, God has historically used the preaching of his word to convert countless numbers of souls throughout history. So love your neighbor. Be bold and invite them. Come and see.
continue on. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now there's an interesting connection here uh, to the story, uh, in this story, to the person of Jacob, uh, who was renamed Israel. Of course, we see the the vision of Jacob referenced at the end. Uh, But firstly, notice Jesus says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now you may remember that Jacob, the son of Isaac, was renamed Israel. Uh, Does anybody remember what the name Jacob first meant? It first meant he grasps the heel, uh, and his name sounded similar in Hebrew to the word for deceiver or deceived. And so we have it when Jacob had deceitfully uh, stolen his brother's blessing uh, from their blind father, Isaac, Esau then uses Jacob's name. He, he kind of uses a play on words when he says, Isn't he rightly named Jacob, Jacob? For he has deceived me, Jacobeni, these two times. He's saying, isn't he rightfully named deceiver? For he has deceived me these two times. Uh, then in Genesis 32, uh, the story when Jacob wrestled with God, uh, he struggled with him until daybreak, and he said, I will not let you go until you bless me. And so in an interesting twist on the story with Isaac, God says to Jacob, what is your name? Right, you think of that. You want a blessing? Tell me your name. Just like when he approached his father, what is your name? And he said then, my name is Esau. He lied. Uh, Here, though, uh, he does not lie, but tells the truth. He says, my name is Jacob. And then God said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and men and prevailed. And so when Jesus uh, says this to Nathanael, Nathanael then was an Israelite without deceit. An Israel and not a Jacob. Uh, Nathanael is therefore an honest man. A man of upright character. and, And Jesus knows this of him. Nathanael is impressed by Jesus's knowledge of him and asks, how do you know me? Jesus answered uh, that he had seen Nathanael while he was under the fig tree uh, before Philip had called him. And I think this is saying Jesus had some supernatural knowledge of Nathanael. For if Jesus had simply meant that he had seen him at a distance, you know, that he had really good eyesight, uh, that would neither explain how he knew Nathanael's character and therefore would not be an answer to the question, Nor would that then explain Nathanael's response, which was to say, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And so Nathanael receives Jesus's answer as evidence that Jesus had some supernatural knowledge. Jesus knew him and somehow had knowledge of him that no ordinary man could have had. 
And so this combination of Jesus knowing his character and this statement of special knowledge was enough to remove any remaining doubts that Nathaniel may have had. And he confesses, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, centuries earlier, the, uh, God had promised King David that his throne would be established forever. God had promised to raise up an offspring of David, and God had said, I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me a son. And so by putting these terms together, uh, son of God with king of Israel, and Nathaniel likely had this particular prophecy in mind. And so his confession was that Jesus was the Messiah. You are the promised descendant of David, the one to whom God would be as a father. You are the king of Israel. But as we've seen, Jesus is the son of God in a much deeper sense. He is the heir of all things, and he has eternally been God, the son. And so Nathaniel very likely spoke better than what he knew. And yet he was also exactly right, for Jesus is the promised descendant of David as well. Why were Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem if they lived in Nazareth? Well, Jesus was born in the year of the census. Kids, you may remember every Christmas, the reading always begins, right? Caesar Augustus issued a decree, <laughs> that a census should be taken. The year Quirinius was governor of Syria. That becomes a familiar one, right? So it was in the census year, uh, and everybody was required to go to their hometown. And so Joseph took Mary to Bethlehem, it tells us, for he was of the lineage of David. Right? Joseph was of the lineage of David. Now we've seen Jesus as the greatest of all prophets. Here we are shown that he is also the king, descended from the house of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. As the angel declared to Mary, you will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is king. He is the son of God. As we've seen earlier, he is the one through whom and for whom all things were made. As the father said to the son in the great messianic psalm, Psalm 2, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so here the warning is given to rulers, be warned, O kings, O rulers of the earth, kiss the sun, bow down and show your fealty by kissing the king's ring, or perhaps his feet. 
Now we're told all the time in our day that towns and cities and nations have to be neutral, that they have to be neutral spaces. And that's why mayors and town councils think that they are required to allow and even promote pride parades, drag queen story hours, and the like. But we would ask, on whose authority do you believe you are required to promote and allow these things? By what standard? Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. All things were made through him and for him. Earthly rulers and kings have been solemnly warned, kiss the son, serve the Lord with fear. You will stand before him to give an account of how you have used the authority you were given. So serve the Lord with fear. And this applies to all of us. Christ is king. And every person owes him their allegiance. There is no fence sitting. You cannot remain neutral toward the claims of this king. As Abraham Kuyper put it so well, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so in every area of life, we are either honoring the claims of the Lordship of Jesus Christ, or we are living in rebellion to him. Christ, our great prophet, has revealed to us in his word the bad news. The bad news is that the rebels who oppose his rule are under the sentence of condemnation. And so if you live your life in rebellion to this great king, refusing to obey, refusing to submit, refusing to honor uh, and grant your rightful king the fealty he's due, you will be condemned. But Christ, our prophet, has also revealed to us the good news. And the good news is that he is also a merciful king. Now, I mentioned earlier that we see all three of the prophetic offices represented in this text. Uh, we've seen uh, that he was uh, a prophet, that he was a teacher, a rabbi, and the prophet like Moses. Here now we have Nathaniel confessing Christ as king, the son of God, the promised descendant of David. But what about the priestly office? Uh, where do we see his role as priest hinted at in our passage? Look with me to verse 36, John the Baptist's testimony. Behold the Lamb of God. Again, as the catechism put it, Christ fulfills the office of a priest in offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. Christ, our prophet and king, is also our merciful high priest, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He took the penalty against sin due to his people. Like the sacrificial offerings under the old covenant, Christ died in the place of his people, taking the wrath of God against sin as he died on the cross. 
And so, Christ then is the ladder to heaven. Let us finish our text. Look down to verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is another reference back to Jacob. For Jacob had a dream in which he saw heaven opened and a ladder reaching from heaven down to earth with angels ascending and descending. And so Jesus now recalls the imagery of Jacob's dream, but says instead of a ladder on which the angels are ascending and descending, he says you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That was Jesus' favorite uh, title for himself. And so Jesus is the one who opens heaven to us. Jesus is greater than Israel. We could say he is the greater Israel. Jesus promises his disciples they will see greater things than what Israel even experienced. For Christ is the fulfillment. Through his word and spirit, Christ our prophet reveals God's will for our salvation. In his word, we are shown that we are by nature subject to the sentence of condemnation from Christ our king, but also that through his work as high priest, Christ has bridged the chasm that sin had created. Through the sacrifice of himself, Christ has reconciled us to God. He is Jacob's ladder, the bridge from heaven to earth. He is the way to the Father. There is forgiveness offered in him, our great prophet, priest, and king. So come and see. Behold the Lamb of God. Amen.